Here is a fact. The Bible uses feminine terminology at least 26 times to describe God. That ought not surprise or disturb us. You see, the qualities that mothers so often project, attributes such as nurturing love, selfless sacrifice, and comforting care, are all equally the characteristics of God. Jesus declared that God is spirit, not biologically male or female. Yet we do refer to Him as our Father because it is how we understand the love and care of our heavenly parent. That, however, does not negate the characteristics of a mother's love we experience from the Lord. Today is the day of the year we celebrate mothers in a special way. Welcome to a worship service for the entire community. Today's message is, We All Need Mom. Good morning. This is Dr. Chuck McGathy, pastor of First Baptist Church of Madison, North Carolina, bringing you a weekly live worship broadcast. Mother's Day's greetings to all as we worship once again through our radio church. This is a special Mother's Day. Some are like me, wishing they could be with mom today. Other moms might like a little privacy right about now. Still others are in a situation where their mother is no longer with them. So we are all in a bit of a fix. But we still set aside this day that falls in the season of Easter to honor motherhood specifically and the contributions of all women in general. The Bible is also mindful of this aspect of our lives together as a human community created in God's image. Some years ago, I took the unusual step of calling my mother specifically to ask her advice as I prepared for Sunday worship. Now, calling my mother for wise counsel is not that odd. However, discussing my sermon before I've written it is. But since the coming Sunday, this coming Sunday was Mother's Day, I I thought I might bring it to her attention and see what she thought. So I made the phone call. Mom, I said, this Sunday is Mother's Day. And I thought, "I, I guess I ought to say something good about mothers. Now, I can't tell you exactly what Mama said next, but the gist of it was that I had better say something nice about mothers and that she would be listening to be sure I did. Oh, the pressure. Not only do I need to prepare to preach, I've also got to think about Mama listening 658 miles away. The truth is, saying something good about mothers is not at all hard for me. I have a wonderful mother, 93 years young, and she has had a profound influence on my life and certainly does influence the sermons I preach. In fact, she listens to every worship broadcast now since her church has suspended meetings. I'm always conscious of that as I work on the messages I bring to you each week, and knowing Mama is listening inspires me to work even more diligently and honestly because I don't want to disappoint her. I also know that sometimes she will also tell me when I might have gotten something wrong. I hope you have someone 
in your life like that too. Someone who loves and cares about you, who inspires you in a mom-like way to do better things, and above all, believes in you. I'm blessed to have several people in my life like that, but the one who has been there for me the longest has been my mom. Many of you know of that kind of relationship, and all of us long for that kind of relationship. The good news today is all of us can have that kind of relationship. Jesus spoke to one of his followers about just such a thing in the 14th chapter of John. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I am impressed by these words of Jesus and just how much the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives is likened to a mother's love. I wonder if you agree with me. So often we think of God in terms of male imagery. We refer to our Heavenly Father and Christ the Son. But consider the feminine attributes of the Holy Spirit and how important these are in our complete understanding of who God is. The Greek word for Holy Spirit is parakletos. It literally means one who comes alongside of us. The word is usually translated as advocate, comforter, counselor, and helper. These are all words that easily describe my mother or any good mother for that matter. Theologian William Barclay says, Always a paracletos is someone called in to help when the person who calls is in trouble or distress or doubt or bewilderment. That sounds just like a mom. As a dad, I've often been reminded of that. When a child falls and hurts a knee, it is to mother that he or she turns first and foremost, while dad is usually dispatched to correct the hole in the backyard that caused the trip in the first place. It is mom who dries the tears and bandages the wound. That is the picture of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The comforter is there to pick us up when we fall, to mend our brokenness, remind us to be more careful in the future, and then send us back out to play. As Christians who believe in a triune nature of God, we recognize that a major function of the Holy Spirit is to cause us to recall Jesus' words. As a dad, I can attest that this seems to be a real contrast between the way moms and dads operate. I don't like repeating myself. I expect my children to listen the first time I speak and do what I say. 
My wife, on the other hand, has a bit more patience here. She reminds me that I need to remind them. She is more patient and believes I should follow her lead. Eventually, even a hard-headed old Navy commander like me sees the wisdom in that. Sometimes children do not like to be told of things they ought to do. Neither do adults. And that applies to disciples of Jesus Christ as well. But look how he begins this passage. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Those are some tough words. Here the Lord sounds a bit like mom. There is no namby-pamby God here. He is telling us we need to do right. We need to keep his word. Once when I was in high school, after I had attended my church's youth group and studied about God's unconditional love, I thought I would check out this truth with my mom. So when I arrived home, I sought her out and asked her, Hey mom, you'd love me no matter what I do, wouldn't you? Well, she didn't answer me directly. Instead, she said, I love you when you do what's right. Well, that wasn't the answer I was seeking. So I explained to her what I was learning about God's agape love, the love that does not waver or fail, the love that is based upon God's faithfulness and not our performance. She listened to me patiently, nodding in agreement that I had understood the concept that I had just learned at church. So I asked her again, So mom, do you love me no matter what I do? And she replied, I love you when you do what's right. I now realize that mama was not theologically off track when she said that. In fact, it mirrors what Jesus is saying here. We know that Jesus' love is unconditional, but our response to him is not. To love Jesus means we take action. If we love him, we will do what he calls us to do. And if we do not do what he told us to do, then it throws open the question if we love him at all. Yet if we do love him, then God has promised he will make his home in our hearts. So if I understand that, then I think I can understand what my mother meant that day. The Holy Spirit, like my mother, was sent to remind us that our response to God's grace is our doing right. This response to God's love became crystal clear to a young man in North Africa. His name was Augustine, but we are more likely to refer to him as Saint Augustine. Here is some of his testimony that amplifies what our response to God ought to be. The young Augustine prayed, O oh God, give me purity, but not yet. As he resisted his mother Monica, and her Christian witness. One day in his garden, Augustine had one of the most famous self-confrontations in history. Suddenly, I heard a voice from some nearby house, a boy's voice or a girl's voice. I do not know, but it was a sort of sing-song repeated again and again. Tolelege, tolelege. Take and read, take and read. I ceased weeping and immediately began to search my mind most carefully as to whether children were accustomed to chant these words in any kind of game, and I could not remember that I had ever heard such a thing. 
Damming back the flood of my tears, I arose, interpreting the incident as quite certainly a divine command to open my book of scripture and read the passage at which it should open. Augustine took up the Bible and opened it to Romans 13.13, which says, Let us conduct ourselves becomingly, as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on Christ. He read that, and he did that. The life of Augustine was changed, and with it the course of world history. In addition to the role his mother played in his salvation, I'd like you to notice something else. Now, this might sound kind of dumb, but bear with me. We cannot be reminded of the words of Scripture unless we read the Scripture. It is, as one Lutheran pastor points out to his congregation, there is some question about this, whether we are really a Bible church like we say we are, We take Christian education seriously, but now I wonder about knowledge of the Bible. Certainly, when you go back and read literature of the past, it is filled with biblical allusions and themes. People in those days knew their Bible stories and characters. As Protestant Christians, we must be Bible Christians, and without a recovery of biblical literacy, Protestant Christianity is doomed to continual decline and even extinction. The Holy Spirit longs to comfort you through the words of Jesus. Yet, if you do not know the words of Jesus, if you do not read your Bible, how will you be reminded of them? If you say, I need help from God in time of crisis, if you say, I need direction in my life, yet His words gather dust from lack of interest or absence of effort, how then can His Spirit speak to your heart? Well, the answer is, God does speak to us, but we can hear him much more easily and clearly if we have absorbed his word into our hearts. And one of the most important things we need to hear each one of us is the promise of peace. Jesus said to his disciples then and now, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Peace. Has there ever been a more needed word Has there ever been a more elusive word? Yet peace is what Jesus promised to give through the Comforter. The Holy Spirit reminds us of the values that bring real peace. We learn these through the Bible, and if we are truly fortunate, we will hear these values echoed in our homes. I was fortunate in this regard. Through my parents, I learned that there were some things more important than money. I learned that God would take care of me and that genuine happiness is not found in things or pleasure or power, but in being faithful. Yet even though I know all these things, it is so easy to become distracted. It is so easy to think that peace comes from the outside in. I am, of course, not alone in this thinking. A teacher of preachers, Neil Donovan, puts it rather plainly. One person might say, I would feel peaceful if I just had a job, a secure job. Another person might say, I would feel peaceful if I could just get out of debt. Another person might say, I would feel peaceful if I could make it to retirement. Another person might say, I would feel peaceful if I just had good health insurance. And another person might say, I would feel peaceful if I just had good health. But remember, 
When Jesus promised peace to his followers, it was during the most traumatic days of their lives. Before long, their master would be crucified and they would each face the likelihood of their own deaths. Yet they had peace. The story of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor who was executed by the Nazis, is retold to illustrate how this can be. Peace is the opposite of security. That's provocative, isn't it? Most of us would answer, no, you've got it wrong. If I just had this or that or the other thing, I would feel secure and then I would have peace. But I can't be at peace while I'm out of a job or deep in debt or living without insurance. But I suspect that Bonhoeffer would answer, no, you wouldn't feel peaceful. Once you meet a particular need, you would find another need that needs to be met. Peace isn't what happens around you. Peace isn't what happens to you. Peace is what happens inside you, down deep at the core of your being. Bonhoeffer knew whereof he spoke. Arrested for opposing Hitler, Bonhoeffer knew that his chances of surviving the war were slim. But he knew that there was a chance. The war was going against the Nazis, and it was just a matter of time, but Bonhoeffer knew that his jailers were likely to come for him one day, and that would be it. Living like that could destroy a person, could, dis- could reduce him to a pitiful, shrunken shell of a person, but that did not happen to Bonhoeffer. He did what he could, never knowing if it really mattered. He did what he could, never knowing what would come next. He wrote, He prayed, he ministered to other prisoners, and when the guards finally came for him, he was able to go bravely. He was able to do that because he had peace, the peace that surpasses understanding, the peace that comes from having God at the center of your life. That's the peace Jesus offers us. We need a God who loves us like that. We have a God who is just like a parent who cares for each of us no matter what. Keep his word. Listen to the spirit of God. Experience the peace of Christ. These are timeless truths of this passage of scripture. But there is yet one more word. Believe. Again, it is easy to think of the word believe in relationship to mother. If I could assign one attribute to her that has made the greatest impact on my life, I think it would be that word believe. I learned about believing not because she sat down to teach that to me, but because I have seen her believe. They say that belief is more caught than taught. I think that is true. Jesus wants you to believe too. He wants you to believe so strongly that it will shake you from complacency and into purpose. People who move from despondency into full and happy lives always have a reason for living. He wants you to make your heart his home and to make the church your extended family. Maybe today you remember your mother's teaching you these things, or maybe it was some other person who longed for you to know the power of God in your life. In some way, that person is still listening to you, wondering what you will do with the rest of your life. How will you answer? Let God's gentle Holy Spirit fill your life with love and hope and peace 
and then you will experience the power of belief. Let us pray. Lord, grant that we may listen to your Holy Spirit. Give us a brand new heart to love you, others, and even ourselves. Teach us to follow you and help us believe with all our hearts. Amen. Our choir sings a great anthem by Pepper Choplin, entitled, In the Hands of the Lord. Before they sing, I'd like to share the powerful words that affirm the love between parent and child that describes our relationship to God. See the hands. See the face. See the miracle of God's grace. Now we come, as many have before, to place the child in the hands of the Lord. A child will come into our lives with open hearts, open eyes. We surround them with a love outpoured and place the child in the hands of the Lord. Through every step the child will grow and change. There will be joy, there will be pain. So now we come to join this day and vow to teach, to guard, and pray. That's when we fall and when they soar. They are held by the hands of the Lord. And when our hands must let them go, by faith our hearts will always know that whatever life may have in store, we place the child in the hands of the Lord. I give you now, both parent and child, the hands of the Lord. Thank you. 
Now for a little bit of news. The churches across the nation are seeking new ways to connect with people during the COVID-19 pandemic. The spread of the virus is ongoing, and fear of the unknown is a daily reality. In response to the need, most thoughtful and loving churches have closed their doors to in-person worship. What many predicted would be the end for many churches has been a blessing for others as Christ followers. We see this as a new day of faith, a great opportunity to recognize our calling as His disciples to learn more deeply what that means and to love our neighbors as ourselves. I am increasingly wearing a face mask, forgive me if I forget, as I go out and about. Others are doing this too. We know that the wearing of a face mask is primarily to protect others from contracting the virus in case we have it. So when you do this, you are saying to others, I love you as I love myself. I am so proud to see the church family communicate love to others Let's encourage one another to always share the gospel in words and deeds, just like St. Francis of Assisi once said, share the gospel all the time, and if necessary, use words. Here is one way the gospel came to me. Last week, I was reminded in a special way of how much God cares for me. The last nine weeks of ministry have without a doubt been the most challenging I've ever had. I've had to call upon my experiences and education as never before to try and meet the challenges that this season of imposed separation requires. This last week, I was reminded again that God is with me, and He is with you, and we are not alone. It happened like this. I got a call on Tuesday morning from Carol Trogdon. She had just finished reading a book and thought I might be interested. The book is A Man Called Peter about a great preacher and chaplain of the U.S. Senate named Peter Marshall. When Carolyn asked me if I had any interest in Peter Marshall, I affirmed enthusiastically that he is one of my preaching heroes. I have, in fact, studied his approach to preaching, and in some ways I hope it is reflected in my preaching. So she has loaned me the book, an original copy from 1951 and signed by the author. As I opened and began to read the first chapter that covered Dr. Marshall's days as chaplain of the U.S. Senate, it dawned upon me that I know the current chaplain of the Senate. Before he became chaplain of the Senate, Chaplain Barry Black was a Navy chaplain. He became the chief of chaplains before he finished, but when he was a commander, he helped a young lieutenant commander. Because of Chaplain Black, I was offered the Navy Scholarship Program to study religious radio and television, which eventually led me to a three-year tour with Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. Today is full of challenges. This type of worship involves skills I might otherwise not have had unless... God's providential hand had been on my life. What I want you to see in all of this is that God's hand is on your life too. He has given you gifts, insights, and values that will help you help others through this trying moment as the church meets the needs of people.
Ask God to show you the connections your life has, and then ask God to use you. Today, God's Spirit is moving like a mighty rushing wind, so set your sails and let God take you where He wants you to go. In the second part of today's worship broadcast, I'd like to look at a post-resurrection story found in the Gospel of Luke. On the ancient church calendar, today is the fifth Sunday of Easter. We are taken back to the time when the disciples are first learning of the resurrection of their Lord. It is a time of amazement. It's a time of wonder. It is a time of new beginnings, not only for the disciples, but for the entire world. The kingdom of God was ushered in, not with fireworks or parades, but through relationships and encounters with a loving and risen Christ. Luke shares with us one of these encounters, which is so special, so meaningful, that it reminds us of the way that Christ comes to us. Let's read of that encounter by turning to Luke, the 24th chapter, and starting with verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened while they were talking and discussing together. Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if they were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. 
An Episcopalian rector, John Benningfield, once asked his congregation, Have you ever gone anywhere just to get away from something? Maybe that's what's happening in this story. The disciples have just suffered what is probably the biggest disappointment of their life. If they were like the others, they had given up everything they owned and everything they knew just to follow Jesus. And now all that seemed to have gone up in smoke, leaving them empty and wondering what to do next. So they walked down the road away from what had happened, not necessarily to anywhere, just away from what had happened. The wonderful writer Frederick Buckner in his book, The Magnificent Defeat, said, Emmaus is where you go when life gets to be too much. The place we go in order to escape a bar, a movie, wherever it is we throw up our hands and say, let the whole thing hang. It makes no difference anyway. Emmaus may be buying a new suit or a new car or smoking more cigarettes than you really want or reading a second-rate novel or even writing one. Emmaus is whatever we do or wherever we go to make ourselves forget that the world holds nothing sacred, that even the wisest and bravest and loveliest decay and die, that even the noblest ideas that men have had, ideas about love and freedom and justice, have always in time been twisted out of shape by selfish men for selfish ends. This story begins on Easter Sunday afternoon. Two of Jesus' disciples, Cleopas and an unnamed disciple, have left Jerusalem and are headed toward their home. It is often assumed that both disciples were male. However, some scholars now think that the other disciple was the wife of Cleopas. In the context of what happens next, it seems likely that they lived together and followed Jesus until he was crucified by the Roman governor, Pilate. No doubt they discussed the dramatic events that had begun only one week before with a triumphal parade as Jesus declared himself the king of the Jews when he rode into Jerusalem on the back of a young donkey. Now, one week later, he was dead. Two days before, his shattered body, prepared for burial, had been laid in the tomb of Joseph, a rich man who had also been one of his followers. It was a rock-hewn tomb so magnificent by the standards of the day that it required a large stone to be levered into place by strong men to make it secure. As the two disciples prepared to leave Jerusalem, rumors were beginning to fly about the city that the tomb had been violated and the body of Jesus was missing. Emmaus was a seven-mile journey, and so the two disciples had plenty of time to discuss among themselves what had happened. It seemed evident from their conversation that they quickly ruled out resurrection. There were just too many problems with that explanation. For one... There was the Roman guard that had been set in place to guard the tomb. The soldiers were not interested in the body of a dead prophet. They were ordered to guard the the Roman governor's seal that had been set upon the stone and the side of the rock wall. No one could go in or out without breaking the seal. The soldiers' orders were to guard that seal with their lives if necessary. They must have thought their duty an easy one. No sane person or persons would attempt a grave robbery under such conditions. Everyone knew that. Cleopas and his fellow disciple knew that 
And because of that, they were puzzled. They engaged in an agonizing and sad speculation as to how and why the body of their master had been removed from his grave. They were so engrossed in their conversation that they failed to notice that they were being followed, a practice dangerous on this road because there were many robbers in the area. Before they realized it, they heard footsteps and then a voice. It was a stranger, and he asked them what it was they were so deeply discussing. The two pilgrims stopped dead in their tracks. They couldn't believe that anyone who had been in Jerusalem would not know of Jesus' triumphal entry, his cleansing of the temple, his arrest, trials, and execution demanded by an angry mob. Sadness again flooded their hearts as they began to recount the events of the last week. Their hopelessness was exposed when they admitted that they hoped he would be the one who would deliver Israel from her oppressors. Well, right then and there we learn something essential about the attitude of the people of that day. Yes, they desired a Messiah, but he must be a deliverer sent by God to free the people from foreign rule. But Jesus did not fit that role. He did not kill the Romans. The Romans killed him. Another self-proclaimed Messiah did appear about 100 years later. His name was Simon bar Kokoba. He was a military, political, religious leader all wrapped up into one who led a disastrous last revolt of the Jews against the Roman Empire. He commanded a Jewish army of about 400,000, and together they gave the Romans a black eye. Through force of arms, they retook from their occupiers nearly 1,000 cities, including Jerusalem. For a while, things were looking up. Jewish zealots felt at last, here was the Messiah, the kind of Messiah they wanted and had prayed for, the conquering Jewish king who would reestablish the kingdom of David. If Simon thought he had defeated the Roman Empire, he had another thing coming. Instead of retreating with their tails tucked between their legs, the Roman Emperor Hadrian ordered his legions to double down. Instead of withdrawing from Judea, he committed more resources and soldiers, including his finest troops, to the utter defeat of the Jews. Simon, would, the would-be Messiah, was killed. And his history records the sad consequences of the last Jewish revolt. The Romans plowed Jerusalem with a yoke of oxen. Jews were sold into slavery and many were transported to Egypt. Judean settlements were not rebuilt. Jerusalem was turned into a pagan city and the Jews were forbidden to live there. They were permitted to enter only on the ninth of Av to mourn their losses in the revolt. Hadrian changed the country's name from Judea to Syria, Palestina. In the years following the revolt, Hadrian discriminated against all Judeo-Christian sects, but the worst persecution was directed against religious Jews. He made anti-religious decrees forbidding Torah study, Sabbath observance, circumcision, Jewish courts, meeting in synagogues, and other ritual practices. Many Jews assimilated, and many sages and prominent men were martyred. Jesus of Nazareth was a different kind of Messiah. Instead of violence, he advised, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. 
He called himself the Son of Man, and he often referred to passages in the prophet Isaiah's writings that seemed to indicate the Messiah would be a suffering servant. Unlike Simon bar Jesus did not assemble an army. By the expectations of most, he had failed. His followers had numbered only in the hundreds. His committed followers were now less than twelve. Judas, having hung himself following his betrayal, it was obvious to Cleopas and his companion that soon all the disciples would disperse into obscurity, never to mention the name Jesus of Nazareth again. And so, the two disappointed disciples set out on the road to Emmaus, a road of grief, disappointment, confusion, and anguish. All of this they confessed to the stranger who joined them on their journey. One might think that anyone listening to such a sad tale would either continue in silence or try to change the subject to a merrier topic, but the stranger instead began to teach the travelers. He began with Genesis and went all the way through the Hebrew Scriptures, demonstrating how wrong their attitude had been about the Messiah and how the true Redeemer of Israel would suffer for the sake of the people. By the time they had reached Emmaus, it was getting dark. The two disciples urged the stranger to stay with them, to eat and rest according to Semitic tradition, and he agreed. As they sat down to eat the evening meal, the stranger, sitting at the honored place, broke the bread and blessed it. It was then that they saw for the first time who had been speaking with them. It was Jesus. Then just as quickly as they recognized him, he disappeared. The two disciples looked at each other in utter amazement. The stranger on the road had given them a brand new perspective of the events in Jerusalem. For the first time, they began to believe that perhaps their Lord had been resurrected. And then, in the breaking of the bread, he was manifested to them. Their eyes and their hearts were opened. In their joy and amazement, they left their meager meal on the table and were on the road again for Jerusalem, heedless of the distance, the dark, and the dangers they knew they had to see the others and tell them they had seen the Lord. They needed to share with them the scriptures. They needed to share with them their recent communion and how Jesus made himself known to them in the breaking of the bread. Suddenly, they were restored in purpose, hope, and joy. The resurrection had become real before their eyes. How gently we are convinced of the resurrection. Jesus does not come with brass bands blaring thundering a holy fight song. He needs no jets flying in formation or fireworks piercing a night sky. The government will not proclaim it and the press will not cover it. Instead, he joins us in our slow walks away from death and defeat. He invites us to consider again the words of our spiritual forebearers to rethink their meaning and importance. Could it be in our self-importance and downright arrogance that we have failed to see the eternal truth written plainly for the ages. We came to church week after week, but did we see Him? 
Do we feel his presence in the breaking of the bread and the sharing of the wine? Do we realize his reality in our lives? Are we just as excited, just as willing to get on the road again and run and tell others despite the dangers and darkness so they too might know the Lord lives? I used to think that the first disciples were greatly advantaged over us modern disciples, but that just isn't so. That's not how Jesus set faith up. The reality of the resurrection comes to each of us personally and convincingly. Then it is our task to tell others. We are commissioned to go to our friends and tell them what we know, what we have experienced, what we have seen with our own eyes. The change within us that inspires our hopeful living is the text of a new script acted out on the stage of our lives. I'll conclude with the words of Charles Hoffacker, who wrote in Christ Alive in the World for Which He Died. Our destination may not be Emmaus, but often enough we walk our own trail of tears. We may not have been inside Jerusalem and seen Jesus crucified, but something happens that shatters our faith, breaks our hope, violates our love. We walk home again, retreating like a defeated army. We don't want a home so much as a place to hide where we lick our wounds, turn our backs on life, and nurse our cynicism. When you must walk your Emmaus road, believing him dead and your hope dead with him, dare to recognize him, a stranger walking beside you, a stranger who offers you broken bread, who lifts you from your burden of hopelessness with his hands marked with wounds from a cross. And once you recognize him and know that the fire of love inflames your heart, once the great cosmic comedy has made you laugh, then run, run through the dark, sad night of this world. Run like a fool for God and let others know of your joy that the Lord has risen and you are alive with his life. Let us pray. Resurrected Lord, be our traveling companion when we are walking down the road of defeat and doubt. Deliver us from our fears by day and our nightmares by night. Help us to dream new dreams and imagine a world empowered by your grace. Fill us with the joy of our salvation that overflows into who we are. May others see that you are alive in us and by so doing experience the reality of resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I hope this community worship experience through the radio has blessed your life today. I'm hearing from new people every week who have been most kind in their comments I am encouraged that this effort has been worthwhile and God is working among His people in some special ways. Now can I ask you to do something that I think will help reinforce what God is doing among us in this unusual time? First, I ask you to pray for one another. Name someone today as the object of your prayers before God. Focus on their needs, their concerns, their hopes, and their dreams. Next, 
Take the time to communicate with that person. Call, write, or if possible, visit in a safe way. Share with them what you have been learning, how God has been speaking to your heart, and why you are thinking of them. We have been living in isolation. It did not start with COVID-19, but developed gradually through years of shallow interactions and withdrawal. Now the church of Jesus on this earth can show our love and care for others. Let your conversations like the one at a home in Emmaus be deep and personal. Do this and see what God will do. This has been Dr. Chuck. Mama still calls me Charlie McGathy, wishing you a happy Mother's Day. If you want to give to support this broadcast, please go to www.firstbaptistchurchofmadison.org and donate online. Also, let me make you aware of some critical needs at the Hands of God Food Pantry. For one thing, they could use some volunteers. If you'd like to volunteer for the Hands of God, please contact our church or Hands of God directly, and we'll help you to do that. Here's specifically some things that they could use in their food pantry. Tomato soup, mac and cheese, peanut butter, ramen noodles, sweet green peas, and pork and beans. You can bring your food donations for Hands of God, financially support this ministry, or receive your free copy of Nurturing Faith magazine and Bible studies by dropping by Monday through Thursday mornings at our church office at 110 South Franklin Street in Madison. You may contact us through phone or email by going on the internet to the First Baptist Church of Madison, North Carolina website. Let's close today with a benediction Then the choir will dismiss us with the song, Without Love, It Will All Pass Away. Words by Mary Kay Beale and music by Lloyd Larson. Now, receive the benediction. No matter what you have done or become or promised to be, never forget that God made you, knows all about you, and loves you unconditionally. May His divine love change you from the inside out, and when it does, you will know what grace really is. Even more, realize that this pervasive, persistent, and powerful force called grace is the best thing you'll ever discover. And when it finds you, your eyes will be opened, and you will see there's nothing but grace.